Welcome to episode 22 of Empower Central, the podcast of Central Christian School in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your host, Head of School Kristen Perona. Here on this platform, we seek to partner with parents to empower you while you're guiding and shaping the next generation. We actually recorded episode 22 while hosting two authors who spoke to our school family as we are preparing to engage others during this presidential election season. Trillia Newbell, author, speaker, and acquisitions editor for Moody Publishers, joined John Anazu, Central Dad, and noted professor, speaker, and writer to help us think about how to engage others in what some would believe to be uncomfortable conversations. Our hope as you listen in is that you would be challenged and find yourself more equipped to engage with others different from you in a way that worships God, edifies the body of Christ, and lays a strong witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of the church. I would like to welcome Julia Newbell to Central Christian School and also welcome John here tonight. Um, John Anazu, it's great to see you. Also want to welcome our parent community, our teachers. We also have some friends of Central Christian School and some brand new friends here tonight. And we are gathered to be equipped in having gospel-driven conversations with those whose beliefs are radically different from our own, both inside and outside of the church. While the main purpose of our evening is to lay a framework to have healthy dialogue as we lead up to the 2020 presidential election, we can't ignore how much we need tools to discuss actually current events in other areas as well. Um, things that have had unfolded since our parent community at least have been physically present together since last March. Um, attention to racial injustice and policing, nationwide protests, the many challenges that have unfolded during the COVID-19 pandemic. We've invited John here, John Anazu and Trillia Newbell to help us think about engaging each other despite differences, move toward mature discipleship and empower us to lead others in our various spheres of influence using humility, patience and tolerance. John is the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion at Washington University here in St. Louis. He writes and speaks frequently to general audiences on topics of pluralism, assembly, free speech, religious freedom, and other issues. In addition to being the executive director of the Carver Project, he is also the author of Liberty's Refuge, The Forgotten Freedom of Assembly, and Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. He is the co-editor with Tim Keller of this book right here, on common ground, living faithfully in a world of difference. And much of our discussion will be about the themes that are represented here in this book. Trillia Newbell is the author of numerous books, including Fear and Faith, United, Captured by God's Vision for Diversity, and a children's book called God's Very Good Idea. We purchased this for our school. Her writings on issues of faith, family, and diversity have been published by various news sources and organizations like the Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, Christianity Today, and a lot more. She's also a commentator for World Radio, a sister platform for World Magazine, and Trillia is currently the acquisitions editor for Moody Publishers. 
I'd like to start out our evening tonight um, with a word of prayer and just ask that the Lord and the Holy Spirit will be present and that he would open our hearts. So let's pray and we'll get started. Father God, I thank you that for those of us who call you Savior, um, for those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, Lord, that a discussion like tonight's is really just having a family conversation. Lord, we praise you that you do unite us. God, I thank you. Um, as Trillia mentioned in her children's book, Lord, that you came and rescued us when we got it wrong. Um, Lord, we surrender ourselves to you tonight. We thank you that you are present. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your truth. And Lord, I just ask that you would anoint each of our panelists here tonight. Lord, that our hearts would be open, that we would listen, that we would learn, that we would seek to understand. And then God, you would use us to impact the communities that you have called each of us to. We praise you, Lord, and we're so grateful for this opportunity. We thank you for the cross, Lord, which equalizes all of us through your blood. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, um, John, I would love to direct our first question to you. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you wrote the book, Uncommon Ground, and how you decided on an edited volume with multiple contributors instead of authoring it yourself? Sure, and thanks, Kristen. And I just want to say first, it's a real joy and privilege to be here with all of you. And even though I'm staring into a Zoom screen uh, yet again, it feels a little more vulnerable too, since some of you actually know me and uh, know that I'm not always patient, humble, and tolerant. So I feel like uh, the stakes are a lot higher with this group, but it's, it's great to be here and great to have Trillia here as well. Mm -hmm. Tim and I thought about Uncommon Ground probably starting about five years ago. He had contacted me about my last book, Confident Pluralism. And as we talked through the ideas in that book, we were both saying how, even though the book itself at the time was presented to a general audience of believers, non-believers, anyone who really cared about American history or political thought could engage with, the, with its ideas. We also both believed that these were distinctively Christian ideas that we were arguing and that Christians should be able to figure out how to live in a world of difference, how to be both authentically faithful to our beliefs, but also loving our neighbors well and treating those around us with kindness and generosity. And so we, we hatched the idea for this book first, I think, in an article that we wrote in Christianity Today, okay. and then uh, in a series of dialogues back and forth. And then very early on, we thought rather than having a set of uh, kind of propositions in the book, we wanted to tell stories and return to kind of the, the narratives, uh, you know, that are modeled so well in scripture, but that we've kind of forgotten as contemporary mm -hmm. Christians. We don't tell great stories anymore. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to tell stories about our lives, but we thought how much better to bring a cohort of friends around to tell stories with us and not just our own experiences. And so we reached out to people like Trillia and we're super grateful when uh, the invitations were accepted. And the, uh, the other thing I'll say about this is early on, Tim and I, were committed to the idea of uh, when we got this going to bring all of the authors in person to St. Louis for a face-to-face -face conversation about the book, what, what our goals were and what we wanted to do together. And as I've said to Trillia many times through a miracle of scheduling, including Trillia catching a 4.30 a.m. flight to get here. Oh my goodness. It was, it was, it was, she, was, she by far had the greatest sacrifice, but we all, all 12 of us who wrote for this book were together here in St. Louis, and we started with a, a long dinner where we just shared some of the stories of our own lives with each other. 
And at that point, this book to me became not just an edited volume of 12 individual people, but 12 people working together to pull off a common project. And, and to me, that made all the difference. That's wonderful. How long did it take? How long did the project take? Uh, that's a good question. Trillia, I think 2018 is when we gathered. It was quick, I felt, but I can't remember. Yeah, we did push it. We wanted to push it actually to for a spring publication, knowing that a lot was going to happen toward the end of 2020. And so I think probably a year and a half from that first meeting to publication, which is pretty quick for a book, as Trillia okay. could tell you. Excellent. And um, Trillia, why did you accept the invitation to join this project? Well, I had been, become familiar with John Inazu from Tish, actually. I don't even know if he knew that. And so, and so as I, and, and of course I knew uh, Dr. Keller, Tim Keller. And so, and so I accepted the invitation because of the vision for the book, mm -hmm. the idea of, of speaking and, and to, um, on a topic of uncommon ground where people are, are engaged together on with differences and and trying to cast a vision for how we can um <laughs> engage together even though we have differences and even actually if you look at the 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 contributors we're, we all have different backgrounds and we have um various different philosophies and maybe even different convictions and and so i think that um that vision to me is compelling and beautiful and it really is a representation of the church because we are so different and it shouldn't be such a polarizing thing difference um so that alone is one of the reasons why i said yes is because i i really in thought to be a part of a project with with people I, I don't necessarily always um, write with or, or am with, um, but yet we all share a common desire to see God glorified and Jesus proclaimed. And, um, and also just the idea of writing on reconciliation, which is what I um, wrote on. I, I wanted to be a part of the, something that I thought was important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And especially at a time like this, you know, in this week alone, I have had a baby boomer tell me that um, friends from 30 years um, are now no longer friends because they began to have these conversations and discovered how differently they saw things. Um, I've had a, a Gen Xer tell me that um, they just don't do conflicts, so they don't enter into conversation. And I'm like, oh, you should come. You should come on Thursday night, actually. <laughs> um, and I've, I've had a Gen Zer um, tell me in college, um, two different races living together um, in a dorm room that they just don't go there um, to talk about the end racism um, campaign of the NFL um, or, um, you know, the, the NBA wearing the Black Lives Matter and they just don't go there. So we're talking three different generations. And so, yes, this is so necessary, um, no matter what your age, no matter where you live um, in our nation, um, for sure. And that's not even the, those generations talking to each other, which is even harder. Oh, yeah, that, that's next level, right? <laughs> um, so you mentioned um, in Uncommon Ground, and I'm going to quote here, Americans lack agreement about the purpose of our country, the, the nature of the common good, and the meaning of human flourishing. And um, 
I've noticed just disagreement about these very topics, even within the body of Christ, within the church. Would you give some examples of the ways that we disagree on these very core beliefs? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, to take one that probably just to pull it out of a hat, who are you going to vote for uh, in a couple of weeks, right? That That is a point of disagreement within probably our own community here. And what are all of the decisions and arguments that are behind the answer to that question? That's one. I mean, so it's, it's hard enough when we think outside of the church, those core big issues that you mentioned, what does it mean to be a human being? There's... I teach at Washington University. There's not agreement on that question at WashU. So I can't even start a conversation in my classes with an assumption about what counts as a human being. And that makes that makes conversation of depth a little bit hard. Mm-hmm. Now, Christians, we, we can come together with some more commonality, but that doesn't mean we have it all worked out. I find one of the least helpful expressions in Christian uh, discourse, and there are many, uh, to be let's major on the majors and minor on the minors as if that solves the problem because we disagree about what the majors and the minors are. And so we're, and, and those are the real pressure points that, that really matter to us. And uh, we're, we're stuck with massive and painful differences, even within the body of Christ. And here at Central Christian, we're actually set up to create that condition. We're represented by and have parents and, and families from all kinds of different churches that have creedal differences among them yeah. and yet come together here. And so I think part of, and I hope we can pick up this theme later tonight, but part of the practical solution for us as an institution, as a school is to figure out what is that which we have in common? How does that bind and constrain us? But also what kind of difference does that allow between us? And that second question is often as hard to identify as the first one. Mm-hmm. And I love how you say um, allowing um, that concept of um, of that. So sometimes, as I um, as I engage with people my own age, as I engage with people within our school or friends outside of my school or even family members, um, it is so easy and and sadly um, sometimes preferable to live in echo chambers, especially in fall, like autumns like this one in political seasons. Um, it often feels actually more like a peaceful choice to not engage with someone that you know or you're almost certain will disagree with you. So what do you both suggest? Um, Should we agree to disagree or should we look for those who disagree with us and actually seek to engage them? Well, that's an interesting question because seeking to engage just to disagree may not be the yeah may not be the best method for building a relationship but if you are relationally already invested i think being open and honest is a good thing so some of the examples you gave of the people avoiding conversation well that's not really healthy you're not actually going to develop a true relationship and it often leaves those who um are b- very burdened feeling isolated. So for example, during George Floyd, had people not engaged with me just because they didn't want to have a conversation, I would have been quite isolated. And so I am grateful for those who maybe didn't understand all the morning to engage with me so that I could explain. So I would say, don't avoid conflict 
um, for the sake of avoidance, but also don't go seeking conflict. And, and I also think that give pe giving people the benefit of the doubt, you never know what your engagement may look like. I have a neighbor, for example, who I absolutely love, but we could not disagree more on most things. <laughs> and so we, we've had very open conversations about everything that's going on and, and, and she has been very open about some of the ways that she has fed herself. And, and so I've, it's actually provided great opportunity for me to give her different suggestions for news sources and maybe the things that she's feeding herself. And also to say, okay, we're citizens of another kingdom. <laughs> We've got somewhat something else to look forward to. Maybe we can pray for each other about these things. And so there has been, so I, so I do think us kind of applying the, the love chapter um, in the context, of course, it's talking about the local church, but in the context, I'm talking about first Corinthians 13. 13. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the context of our relationships is very happy, bearing all things, um, being, be, being, assuming the best of other people helps mm -hmm. us with engagement. So that was a long answer, but I would just say, absolutely. We want to pursue relationships where we can engage openly, but I don't think it's appropriate or necessary to seek out just for the sake of argument. That's Twitter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, another way I, I completely agree, Julia. And another way to think about that question you asked Kristen is to think of it as a two-step process. If you're in the echo chamber, step two is relationships across difference, but step mm -hmm. one, you can do without actually engaging directly with your neighbors and friends. Step two is to try to educate yourself a little better. And actually, or step, step one, I'm sorry. And I'm increasingly concerned that a lot of Christians in this country are not even in step one. And so let me give you a little uh, comparative example here. Mm -hmm. We are going to disagree as Christians, especially in a, a community like Central Christian that draws from all kinds of different church communities and backgrounds. Yeah. We're going to disagree on important questions like what is the relative order of importance of issues that Christians should care about at the polls? I mean, that's just, we're not going to resolve that. And there's no authority or hierarchy within Central Christian to tell us how to resolve that. Right. We should, however, be able to agree on empirical facts of the world. And if we can't do that, then we have capitulated to a kind of Christian relativism that ultimately is, is, is just not uh, how we're called to be in this world. And I'm, so let me give you an example from left and right where I've seen this recently. Uh, toward the left, uh, when I heard some public health experts and some people on social media just saying in March that pro outdoor protests were way too dangerous and you could not do them uh, if you're protesting the COVID shutdown orders because you were endangering the lives of vulnerable people. And then a month later, those same people saying, protests for racial justice have to be done and it's okay to protest. Well, that, that is a, that you're getting the facts wrong. That's not a, a judgment of moral weight. You're just, you're making factually inconsistent claims. And if you're in that echo chamber, then, then you need to take step one and start getting out of there. In the same way, I was on a call just a, a week ago with some national Christian leaders. And one of them, who's the pastor of a large church in California said, there is no pandemic. The pandemic is a lie. That's, that's a bad fact of the world. That's not a moral claim. It's a bad fact of the world. And if, if you are sitting there thinking, yeah, there's no pandemic, it's a whole, it's the whole thing's a lie, 
then you need to get to step one out of the echo chamber because you're being formed by factually erroneous information. And, and I would say you're, you're, you're failing to honor God with heart, mind, soul, and strength in that, in that moment. Mm -hmm. And it is so amazing that within the church that um, I think when you use the word relativism, I mean, that's kind of a jolt and it's like, oh, no, no, not not in our church, not in our congregation. But when you actually identify it in that way, um, I think that definitely gives us gives us pause for cause um, or cause for pause. Julia, in your chapter that you wrote for Uncommon Ground, um, you mentioned several times that you have been called to be, you use the term reconciler. And what does it mean to be called to reconciliation? Because it's obviously a calling on your life. Um, how does it play out in very practical terms for all of us today? Sure. Well, I'll just start by sharing a little bit about me. Um, I did not grow up in the church. I grew up in a very loving home, but not a Christian home. And I also grew up um, surrounded by a lot of racism. So I, I experienced racism from a very young age. Um, mothers who would say that um, I was different, but not different, like sub creature, almost subspecies to um, their children. Um, we had a country club that for the longest time didn't allow black people. And this is, you know, I'm pretty, I'm not young, but I'm not old. You're not old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I remember people, they would have parties I couldn't go to at different places because I wasn't allowed in the place. And, and then um, I remember walking down the street with a um, band member, I was in a band and he happened to be a white male and someone uh, threw a rock out the window and called us, called him an N-word lover. And so, so, but this is just, a, I'm just telling you just a few. So throughout all of my life, growing up, but all of my life, I endured a lot of um, hateful hate speech and hateful interactions with people who just saw me as a foreign, foreign, I don't know, just hated me because of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I grew up in a loving home and my father, who also experienced a lot of racism, always really taught us to love people. Mm -hmm. And, and so <laughs> I grew up asking a lot of questions like, why, why would they not why would they hate me just because of the color of my skin? And I grew up marching um, every Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. We would have a celebration and a march and uh, an assembly. And we, so, so I just grew up in that environment. But it wasn't until I became a Christian hmm. at the age of 22 that I really understood, okay, the, all of this desire I have for yeah. unity and my love for diversity and, and this, all of this was because I'm an image bearer and God put it in my heart. And so as I, re, as common grace reflected him, that's just a way that he, he just made me um, desire what he desires for the church and for people. And, and so when I understood what the gospel accomplishes, think of Ephesians 2, first we're reconciled to God, and then we see this beautiful picture of the veil being torn in the body of Jesus Christ, making one new man, the Christian man, we're reconciled to him. 
um, and to each other, I, I just saw, okay, this is what it means to be a Christian. Mm. We are reconciled to God and cosmically reconciled to each other. We are called to walk that out. And so all of us really have a ministry of reconciliation. We are to be ambassadors, as I write, in, um, to Jesus. So to go out into the world, to pro- proclaim him, and to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Now, for me, that has meant forgiving a lot of really horrible things. And, and I want to say, and I want to be really cautious about that word forgiveness, because that can place a heavy burden on people. So I'm not saying um, a, that we must forgive in a certain way in a certain time. There's grace for and in, in healing and God is very patient with us. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are called to be um, ministers of reconciliation, which means proclaiming Jesus and exercising that in the world. So how does that look practically? Well, for me, it's, it, God's made a ministry of that through writing and speaking and, and kind of a boldness to, to rebuke where needed. I've, I've had plenty of opportunity because of where I've spoken from Charlottesville to Memphis, just an opportunity to speak directly to people and, and, and pray that the Lord will do that work because that's also the thing about any ministry is we, we proclaim truth, but only God can actually do that transforming work um, in the hearts of others. But then also things such as um, volunteering at, at certain, I, I volunteer at our local a shelter mm-hmm. and, and getting to speak to those women who are addicts and, and, so that's not even about race, right? Socioeconomic, it, it goes beyond race in a lot of things, but helping to proclaim that truth so that they can know Jesus and then we can be reconciled even socioeconomically, just knowing that our differences, the f- ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so, so there's lots of different practical ways you can walk that out. Uh, even this conversation that we're having, um, when we are talking about a Christian school or anything where there's differences and Mm-hmm. To be reconciled with each other is essential. Jesus says that they will know you by your love for one another. And so we have an opportunity to proclaim Jesus. It's apologetic to the world by the way we interact and, and serve one another as a people, as a church, as a people, as a school. Um, and so I think there, ultimately the responsibility is on on us to to ask the Lord for grace to um, walk and the way he's called us to walk, which in some ways, in a lot of ways, it, for me, it's meant death, mm. a lot of death, um, dying to myself and um, <laughs> in ways that I wouldn't have imagined before. You know, um, I remember, and this will be the last thing, after speaking somewhere, going into a hotel room and weeping because um, I, I've, I had someone tell me after speaking that, um, that I had a curse on me because of my, my race. And this is after explaining the Imago Dei, the image of God. And, mm-hmm. and so I explained truth, but 
at that moment, I had a choice to make. Um, and I chose, Lord, by your grace and your power only, am I going to speak the truth in love? Mm. Because when I leave here, I want, I want him to be, be completely aware that it's wrong, mm -hmm. but I want you to be able to convict him and for him to have, be able not to have any word against me <laughs> because mm -hmm. of my response. So, so the Lord's just given me that conviction, but we all really have a responsibility. Well, I thank you for being so transparent with us and, um, and vulnerable and sharing a little bit about your story. Um, what, what strikes me as I listen to you, Trillia, is that you keep bringing it back to Jesus. And um, over and over and over again, you bring up the cross um, in, in Uncommon Ground when, when John spoke at the, or wrote at the beginning about um, not just tolerance, but also humility. So there's patience and there's humility. So John's bringing up humility. You're bringing up death. Um, you're bringing up dying to certain things. And, and you're circling it back and you're focusing everything on Christ. Um, you're right. I mean, it is the Lord that is going to change hearts. It is, it is absolutely the Lord that will do the convicting. Um, can we be the truth speakers can we be the ones who love like Jesus loves? And I, I think if we focus on that, if we put our energy into loving others and treating each other and serving each other um, the way that Christ did, my goodness, that would take so much energy because it's just counter our nature, you know? Um, and for you, it might be serving in a shelter. Um, for us at Central Christian School, it's going through the carpool line in the afternoon with our neighbors. Yeah. Um, you know, we are getting a little bit better though. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's still the beginning of the school year, but there are so many opportunities. Um, you know, in Trillia, you're not part of our school community. We are not, we're in person learning, but we're not um, having parents in the building yet. And yet social media does give us an opportunity to engage with other parents, um, to interact. And I mean, there's just so many ways that we can take what you are sharing tonight and apply it um, to our own community. And I thank you so much. Um, for your transparency in that. And audience, I do want to say that we will um, open it up for questions um, later on in the evening. So feel free. There's a Q&A button. Um, I know you can't see each other um, and you can only see the three of us, but go ahead and if um, you have a question that comes to your mind, go ahead and submit that and we will try our best to get um, to all of them. Um, but Thank you, Chilia, for, for sharing a little bit of that. So you bring up um, people who, because of your race, will say that you're kind of a sub-creature. And so that is, a, that is a prime example of stereotyping. Um, how do we avoid stereotyping people who think differently than us, um, who live differently than us, who pursue different things, who are passionate about very different things like John alluded to at the beginning. Um, I'd love to hear recommendations from both of you. How do we avoid stereotyping people? It's so hard. John, do you want me to start or you? Uh, go ahead, Julia. <laughs> okay. Well, the first thing I just want to say that the subhuman thing is actually one step above stereotyping mm -hmm. because the unfortunate thing is that they learned it and they learned it from the church. And so they took the idea of 
the curse of ham. This is a very long, I'm not even going to go into it, but y'all can research. It <laughs> I would love to hear now. <laughs> Maybe that could be part two sometime. Cause I would love to hear where you go with this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so they, there is a lot of teaching, false teaching about um, race and ethnicity and the origins of people and all sorts of things. And that's where, that's where actually he, he took that is. Mm-hmm. And, and so that is why he thinks he, he he is a superior per or superior race. Mm-hmm. And so, which is unfortunate. Um, but a lot of that teaching is why um, people justified slavery, but that's another topic altogether. But this is so, so that is not actually just stereotype, but to, to, I really think um, to guard against stereotypes, Unfortunately, this has become a bit of a cliche, but I do think relationships help because then you understand that people are different. We are not monolithic. We are all different. And those differences are, you're not going to know if you don't know. John, I'm going to, he also pointed out educating ourselves in a lot of ways, especially in this day and age where we have access to so many books and mm-hmm. articles and there's so much information available to us. There is almost no excuse to make assumptions of people. <laughs> we can instead educate and ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And so for, for me, I think, and I, stereotyping, I think it has been a problem. We assume things about people that we don't know, but I actually think bias is a greater problem um, where we assume something and, and it leads us to, to, um, to react a certain way that is negative towards that person. Mm -hmm. So, so we will, um, just to give you, well, yeah. To give you a real specific example, I had the joy of speaking at a Christian school um, here locally in the Nashville area where I live. And it was such a joy to speak to those high school kids. And and so I was speaking on the Imago Day and the gospel and all of these things. And I gave them practical steps. At the end, the principal came up to me and he said, you touched my heart. And then he immediately confessed, I have had a bias towards Muslims. Mm-hmm. And so anyone who's dressed a certain way or looks potentially Middle Eastern or mm-hmm. not, maybe they're not even Muslim, but that is what he said. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm convicted. I have assumptions about them. I don't want them in the school. I mean, he was just, mm-hmm. and I, I was like, stunned that he would confess and I thanked God immediately and I just explained to him that this is God's kindness it's his kindness that leads us to repentance so I actually think our stereotypes can lead to bias that leads us to rejecting people to partiality to preferring people more than than others so how do we not do it I think is educating ourselves and and dropping the, the 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 idea that well that 
maybe our problem is is that we think we're better and so we that's why we're applying that stereotype so so i do think that those are just some things to be aware of is what are we thinking in our own hearts and minds what assumptions and who have we what is feeding our ideas of people and we're applying that right it is it media is it whatever it is that we're applying mm -hmm. um Last thing, John, I'm so sorry. I just, I did a research, I did a research paper in college and I scanned all of these different magazines just to see what type of images um, were reflected of African-Americans. And one of the things that I noticed is that sports yeah. and I couldn't remember what else. There were sports and a few other things that were African-American, like sports, entertainers, and something else and then for people um white people there was like firefighter police like all these hero kind of so that matters and so we, you may hear the term rest representation matters okay that matters in in and that's how we build stereotypes what we see and what we believe and how we perceive ourselves as in, do we think we're better above, et cetera, really motivates the way we think about others. Mm -hmm. Thank you. John, yeah, just, just two quick thoughts to add to that. One is I, I think with stereotypes and bias, we might actually need to spend some time in context to figure out or discern what the different biases are. And so for me, the example that comes to mind is we moved here, Caroline, never, I never remember if it's nine or 10 years ago, something in that orbit. And I started teaching at WashU and uh, worked with a colleague pretty closely in those first few months to get some law students out to some of the public schools in North County to work on basic courses on constitutional law and Fourth Amendment stuff. And it was great. And it took a lot of time. And then she and I sat down for breakfast, you know, a few months into this, and she looked across the table and she said, you know, I don't get you because you're one of those religious people, but you care about poor people. <laughs> and, and so that was my cue, like, oh, I got to back up a couple steps and I, gotta, I have to realize I'm in this new context and there's a lot of bias and stereotypes that are going to take a while to kind of complicate. And, and I think so step one is sort of figuring out what is the context I find myself in and what are the possible biases. And then this, the second point, which is probably a caution for all of us who are part of Central Christian, one of the dangers of the echo chamber or getting out of bias is it's you sometimes think that you're out when you're still actually in and you can't, it's very hard to self-diagnose and pride gets in the way. So we can look at our community and we can point to a lot of gifts that this community has and its diversity, uh, on a racial, political, other, and we can pat ourselves on the back, on the back by saying, I have some black Christian friends or I have some Republican friends or whatever your category is. But you, even, even then, you might still have stereotypes and biases, and you might be tempted to impute all of your account of that group, whatever it is, on a few people you happen to know. And that then can reinforce its own form of bias and problems when you, when you fail to remember that people are complex. Muslims are complex. Christians are complex. Republicans and Democrats are complex. And if we don't, if we, if we start to think, oh, we know those people because we have friends who are those people, then we're, we're also uh, failing to appreciate a lot of nuance and difference around us. 
So what would the next step be? Because I find that personally challenging and I wonder if some audience members also finds that, that challenging because God has gifted our school with the gift of um, different socioeconomic statuses and different races, um, different cultural backgrounds, different political sides. And so, yes, it, I think that it feels good sometimes to be at Central Christian School because this is how God created us to be. And yet um, there's so far to go because you mentioned the complexity of humanity, um, John. So what would that next step be if we um, have others speaking into our lives to kind of guard, you know, guard us from self-diagnosing or self-describing who we are? Um, what would some practical steps be um, to, avoid, to avoid doing that? Yeah, I mean, so I think this works best in relationships of trust. So make sure you have trusted relationships and don't assume that they're there until you've actually had conversations about whether there's mutual trust. And then within relationships of trust, I think there are some very, not easy to execute, but easy to identify things you can do. So for example, go to a friend who's different than you and say, send me an article that you know I won't like. <laughs> And let's then have an honest conversation about it. Or in a trusted relationship, and some of us probably have experienced this, you, you think you're on the same page. And then once there's a little more trust built, then you hear, now tell me what you really think about this. And it takes you to a, ne a next level of, of reality, truth, and vulnerability. And again, it's very fragile at that moment, but, but it's very important because then we're getting past the superficiality. And the more painful difference we actually surface, the harder it's going to be to press on in unity and in friendship. We're still, the beautiful thing though, as Christians is we're still called to that. So we don't have an option, but to return to that. And, and I think again, within relationships of trust, that gives us the freedom to push toward that deeper truth and not just skate by on superficial assumptions that we actually do know each other well across our differences. Yeah, that's, that's excellent and so challenging. John, you mentioned your, um, I think, I don't think it was a student, but someone that you were working with um, at WashU, shocked that you were a Christian because you cared about um, people who were poor. It is, that's so hard um, to hear um, when you hear Christianity being associated with all sorts of things. And that definitely is happening um, today. How do you guys recommend that we maintain our witness with the unbelieving world? We do have lives outside of Central Christian School. How do we maintain our witness? John, do you want, okay. Uh, well, I mean, I just think, I hope you have lives outside of your school. That's one of the things that can help is not to be insular. It's so easy to get comfortable and to be in your own circles. And, and so I think that's, that's one way. Also, many of us, there are many who aren't, but many of us are on social media. And I don't know if people just don't realize that people see what they post, but, but I really think if you're, if you're one thing online, you better be it in person too. So I, I, I would say what you post about and how you engage in social media is important. I mean, we're, we're, we're not um, divided people. In other words, we want to be salt and light wherever we are. Um, and then I, I, I really do think practically you're just going to do what John did is have those conversations and sh 
tell them, um, but also show them. But in, in many ways, I, I just, and this is not to discourage everyone. Um, I think we're in a, we're in a fight for it because our wit, I, I, I believe that our witness has been, um, tainted in so many different areas and different ways with different things, um, in the national news and all over the place that we, we are going to, when we stand out, it's going to be, we stand out and people are going to see, okay, there's something different and we will be able to proclaim that it's Jesus. Because I just think that those who follow Jesus are going to stand out. And so, and, and I believe for good. Um, and, and so, so I, that's both a discourage, it's, it's discouraging to know that we have so much to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's also encouraging mm-hmm. because I think, I think our witness is actually going to be, it's going to be easier to witness because people are going to know, okay, they actually follow the real Jesus. So, so that's my, those are my three cents or two cents. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I would love to see us as a body, and I think you know the body of Christ, but also the community at Central Christian, to do a better job encouraging and equipping each other across our different vocational spheres, and just having the grace and confidence to know that we are working and seeking to honor Christ in the lives we live and the relationships we seek. And it's very easy, I think, for Christians to forget that the context we're in and the gifts that we're given. I'm thinking now, you know, the ministry that a number of central Christian parents who teach at WashU are involved in through the Carver Project, trying to be a Christian presence at a very non-Christian school. And as I was going around, as I often am seeking support and speaking to one of the local churches and uh, the leadership committee there, and I gave the presentation about what we do as Christian faculty at WashU, trying to be a faithful presence uh, as Christians and to encourage Christian students. Mm-hmm. And the first question I got was, I didn't hear much about evangelism in your presentation. Why isn't there more evangelism? And I, I was, my answer was, well, because we're at WashU. Right? It's not going to work to have an evangelism effort as faculty at WashU. But we can, we can be honoring Christ and seeking his kingdom and working toward his ministry in all kinds of places. And we have different vocational gifts and spheres and callings. And I think very often we, we start to say, oh, the right way to be the body of the Christ or to be witnessing is to do X, Y, or Z. And if you're not on board with that, then you're not being a good enough Christian. And I, 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 so I think we need a lot more grace with each other and, and a lot more encouragement of each other. Yeah, and it is all God's world and he calls us his people um, to so many different spheres. And I think that this is an opportunity um, with the upcoming election, for sure, in the break room at work, um, you know, in the, in the carpool line at school. There's just so many opportunities um, to, to engage in these types of dialogues and, and to be really bold. And Trillia, I hope you're right. I hope you're right that, that we will stand out, um, that we will be um, very different in the world's eyes. So we do have a couple of questions from the audience, but before that, um, I would love to know um, from you, Trillia, and then John, feel free to add anything. You are a dad of three as well, but, but in light of this, um, this new children's book or recent children's book that you published, um, I love it. 
it reminds me of um, Sally Lloyd um, oh, Jones. Jones, yeah. That's where where you read it to your young child, but then you're you're like teary eyed because oh. you're so amazed at the gospel before you get to the end of the story, and it reminds you as a believer, oh right, th- this this is the heart of the gospel. Um, so thank you so much for writing it. Um, what can we teach our children? as we walk through this election to help them um, be better citizens, to help them be more unified Christ followers than our generation has been. Um, it is quite an opportunity. Obviously here at Central, we love kids. Our students are about ages three to 12. Um, there's so much potential for them um, to, to make a difference, not only when they grow up, to hopefully be men and, and women who follow after Christ. But even right now, um, when they're playing sports and when they're in dance class, there's such an opportunity for the Lord to use them right now. Um, how do we teach our kids to walk through this season differently than maybe our generation was taught? Yeah, it's interesting. So we go, my kids go to a public school mm-hmm. um, and it's non it's a public school. So, <laughs> so, um, and they are, all the students are talking about this election. And so one of the things that we've tried to do, because I believe very strongly that if we don't disciple them, the culture will. So we're talking about um, policies and different issues that are coming through and different things. How can we think about it? Okay, here, here are the ways that other people think about it. And this is why. And so we are trying to give kind of a broad education about the the different topics and issues that might be on the various platforms rather and then we have we are pretty much voter conscious people so not a party affiliated mm-hmm. um that's how our family operates mm-hmm. so so we are we talk about that we talk about character we talk about character of the candidates and what are we looking for like what, what can we, what is this, is this good? Is this good? And then we're talking about um, what do we believe? How does, what is, how does God's word, word inform the way we should believe? Some of these things, God's word doesn't say very clearly. So what, what are some convictions, things that we can think through? Um, how do we want to care for those who, God says, love our neighbor as ourselves. How can we do that practically when we think about policies? So for our family, we get pretty, we just go in there and get real specific about what, what these policies are, what it is that's on the platforms, platforms, because we want to educate them. Otherwise, there's kids, their friends whose parents are telling them certain things will, so we're, or the culture will. So I would say be very, don't assume kids don't, can't learn. Mm. They are listening to everything, as you all know, you know, and they can, they can absorb quite a bit of information. Mm-hmm. So I would assume intelligence mm-hmm. as com- other image bearers that they know probably more than we think. They're listening to it all. And to just go, go to the topics that you wouldn't even think we talk about, um, everything from abortion to affirmative action, to the economy, we are talking about it because somebody's going to teach them if we don't. So that's what, that's my advice in regards to the election 
and politics. And most of the kids, they're, they aren't like f fighting over, because they're, they're, I have a 14 year old and a 10, almost 11 year old to give context. Mm -hmm. So they aren't really fighting over these things, but we do have things going on in our county, like name changes because rebel or something, or yes. changing their, the, the seal. So these are things that we can talk about. Okay, why are we changing these symbols? Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of opportunity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about a lot of things and it's i i find it it's good it's good it's good um and it's hard because yeah. parenting is hard but <laughs> to our audience wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall in her home like during the dinner hour actually i did a whole series on my instagram page about walking through all sorts of history and stuff for black history month and just some things some fun ideas i did that's a total so you can kind of be a fly on the wall but, <laughs> but every conversation is not easy but right. it is it is good to have them and we feel a conviction about it but it's not always easy yeah <laughs> I would, I would add to that that our kids are going to learn from our substance, but also from our posture. And so regardless of what we're saying, if we look like people who are putting our own interests before the interests of others, our kids are going to see that. If we look like people who are gloating and self-protective and triumphalistic uh, and uncaring, yeah. uh, our kids will see that. And that'll speak volumes to them for the rest of their lives. So just one practical thought about this election coming up regardless of the outcome there will be people around you who are hurting and upset and the candidate who you vote for or the candidate who is elected will be deeply flawed will be part because we're stuck with the two major parties we have will be part of an apparatus that advances unchristian policies that hurts human lives and and that is um destructive in some ways i mean there are positives in both directions too but there's also destruction so one thought is, regardless of how you wake up the next day after the election, maybe a prayer or a posture of lament for the world we have and how far it is from the world that which is to come and, and a way, an encouragement to yourself and to those around you to love your neighbor. I think it's very possible that we are going to be in a period of weeks or months with lots of opportunities for neighbor love and for self-sacrifice regardless of what comes next and if we as christians could lead the way in that posture then that will speak volumes to our kids that's so good john yeah, yeah. and so so good so a couple of questions from the audience um one mom in our school asked what are some strategies that have worked for the two of you when trying to build relationships with people with fundamental differences Julia, you mentioned relationship a lot and, you know, starting with that, um, what are some strategies that have worked when actually trying to strengthen that relationship? Yeah. So for me, I think it's been not avoiding or okay. so uh, loving my neighbor, my literal neighbor is, <laughs> she's a really good example of someone who we, we just have a lot of differences with some of them, but we do agree about the gospel, the gospel. So just, I do think that that's a unifying help, but not everyone I engage with is a Christian, yeah. um, but my neighbor is. And so I think for me is, is just seeing them as human, mm -hmm. as image bearer and not, not, not um, minimize, or there's a better word, but relegating, I, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, but them to their ideology. 
Yes. If we remind ourselves, we're talking about human beings made in the image of God, then we're going to engage them differently. Um, they're not a caricature. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to do that. Um, so I think for me, it's been trying to, now I, I have shared all the positive ways that I've <laughs> engaged in, and I, I will share a, I have, I remember one time on Facebook, absolutely losing it when someone made a comment that I thought was terrible and I let them know. And then I repented and I felt terrible. Another friend stepped in with grace. And so I am not, I'm not here as someone who has done this perfectly, but someone who has sought to seek, uh, sought to honor God and to repent when I fail. But, um, but yeah, so I think uh, not avoiding people and char- characterizing them as and minimizing their human, their their the image of God in them, I think is helpful. So I don't know if that's a real practical. I think it's more of a posture, as John has said, and a mental, a brain, you know, a conviction. Yes. It would come from the Lord to in order to do that. Yes. And, and one maybe a practical thought is start with the ordinary that you have in common. I mean, don't start right into the conversation about your deepest differences yeah. as well. <laughs> I, I think of, uh, I've got a very good friend in town who's an atheist and we do talk sometimes about faith differences, but we didn't start there. We started having long conversations about what we had in common and sharing breakfasts and going on runs and walks together. Yeah. And that built the friendship or my friend, Ibu Patel, who's a Muslim, and so we, we have fundamental faith differences. The very first time we got together, he was down in St. Louis, he lives in Chicago, and we took a long walk around Forest Park and, and talked about what is it like to be a dad who travels a lot? Yeah. And what's it like to be a public speaker with people yelling at you sometimes? And, how, and that, was, that was our bond. And, and then the last time he and I did a public event together uh, on stage, I said, well, you know, Ibu, I'm still hoping that you'll become a Christian. And he said, that's not going to happen. And I said, well, I'll keep praying. And we actually meant that. It wasn't inauthentic, but we're only able to have that kind of authentic, you know, back and forth because we have a, a friendship of trust that is built on a lot of commonalities that are not about the, you know, the, the deity of Jesus. Yes. You know, I'm really glad he said that because that's another thing. You don't want to make someone a project. Mm. So you want a genuine love and what John is communicating is a genuine love and relationship for two people that leads to a potential gospel conversation, but there's a genuineness there and not a project. And I really also think that that helps with relationships if we view people that way. Yeah. So let's take it a step further with the relationship after the election comes Thanksgiving and we have a few, um, members of the audience that have brought up the concept of relatives. Um, and one is curious if either of you have family members who see issues very differently than you do. Um, maybe, you know, one mentioned that she's part of a group text um, that, you know, they're just like pushing these political ideas into this family, <laughs> extended family text. Um, but when you can't even agree like on basic facts, like the pandemic being real or inherent racial bias being real, um, how do you even start that conversation with relatives? How do you have intelligent and thoughtful discourse on that? Yeah, what a great question. My hunch <laughs> is actually, uh, you know, a lot of things that we're talking about are um, applicable across 
politics and across ideological perspectives. My hunch is this question, and at least in my own experience and talking with lots of people around the country, this particular dynamic skews in, in a particular political direction. Uh, and there's, a, there's, an, there's especially a rift, I think, between Gen X and boomer parents that I've noticed. Mm. Uh, a friend of mine, perhaps, or, or people I won't name, but, uh, but, but this is a real thing. And um, I saw on Twitter a quip that uh, Fox News has done to our parents what they were afraid gangster rap was going to do to us. So, so, so there is like a very, <laughs> oh, I saw that. <laughs> a very real conditioning. And, that, you know, that's not the only example, but it is the case that, and we started this whole conversation with it with a nod to generational differences. It is the case that especially uh, w across generations, people are being formed by very different news sources. And it's not, it's not necessarily a, there are problems in all directions. There, are, if you get all of your news from uh, Facebook, it's a problem. If you get all of your news from Twitter, it's a problem. And and but this creates risk between us, and it makes things like the Thanksgiving dinner table, even if we get there in person, really hard to, to think about sometimes. And so part, I mean, one thought I have is go back to what you have in common and remember uh, that you do have a shared history and a shared mm -hmm. trust. It's harder when you've lived away from people sometimes to remember that, mm -hmm. but that's important. And then the other thing I would suggest just very practically is try this out on other people before you go to your parents, right? Have a couple practices because <laughs> <laughs> family is hard. Uh, family is hard and, yeah. and you're going to need a lot of sometimes prayer and grace for that. Trillia, what do you think? Yeah. So my family actually, ideologically on both sides, we agree on most things. Mm -hmm. um, and so this conversation is a harder one for me to speak to because my, my experience, but there, there's, there is one topic where um, abortion, for example, I would be pro-life. Um, and so I, there is, we, we've talked about, and I think you may have mentioned it, that we don't want to agree to disagree for the sake of fake peace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do think there is a time when you, at, you're, you just, okay, this is, you lay it out, you share it, and then you have to, have to bring it to the Lord. So you can't just keep pushing your, your ideas or your, at some point you say it, and maybe you say it over and over again, and then you have to just take it to the Lord. And so, um, sometimes you just got to eat the turkey, right? I mean, just <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I do think for the sake of peace, there is a there is a time when you lay down your arms, but that's not again. That's not um, as long as you've actually spoken the truth in love. That's not a being a doormat or. But I, I really do think there are, there's just a time where, and what's the, the, is it a proverb that answering a fool in their folly is a bad thing? I don't know. <laughs> there's a <laughs> proverb by Trillia. But you, you, there is a time when arguing is you, you can't change someone's. Mm -hmm. mind or idea. So I think in family situations is when you really get that, you get that kind of raw, you can't. Mm -hmm. So there, I, I do think for the sake of peace, sometimes you lay down your arms and, and it's okay. Um, yeah, I, I just got a, a message on 
Instagram, Twitter yesterday where a, a family rejected someone because of her views on racism, just mm. completely rejected them. And, and again, that's, that's their decision to do that. Um, it's so hard. It's so hard when that happens. Um, but there is a point where there's absolutely nothing you can do. So I, I mourn that. I mourn those families that are being torn apart because of these topics. But I know that even in this, re there's, that is a reality. So Yeah, yeah. I think one other just challenge that I sometimes ask myself is, um, what does it mean to honor your father and mother um, at all stages? It's not like the commandment goes away when you turn 18. So, you know, we're, we're all still called, uh, if our parents are still living, to honor father and mother. And in the midst of massive disagreement, in the midst of failure to communicate, in the midst of, you know, sometimes appropriate judgment of, of thinking or viewpoints, we're still called to honor father and mother, and that can be hard, but it's it's not it doesn't become optional once we <laughs> grow up. Right, right. That's and it's almost harder sometimes. Um, yeah, when we have our own children um, to honor the other generation. Um, well, we do need to wrap up. I could speak with both of you all evening, and I know that um, our parents and our grandparents and our community our school community um, have been so challenged and have been blessed by you guys. Um, before we close, do you have any closing thoughts or any um, closing word for the Central Christian School community as we head into this season? Um, John, you have a question. <laughs> I hope you don't mind me doing this, but I wonder if this should be your closing thought. Someone's asking, can you define confident pluralism? Can you, uh, sure. Yeah, if you go to Amazon.com, and no, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, so, uh, well, yeah, let me do that quickly, and then I'll give you a closing thought, and then Trillia can have the last word. But confident pluralism, both words of the phrase are important. Pluralism, recognizing the reality of the differences around us and seeking to live into and toward those differences rather than withdrawal or trying to control. And then the confident part, we're confident in who we are, in, in the case of Christians, whose we are and what we believe. And so, and, and the premise of that book and that argument is we're only going to figure out how to engage in a world of difference if we are, if we know who we are, what we believe, and we can do that with some confidence. So the, the two parts there. Thank you for the question. And I'll give you a cut of all of the book sales out of that. And uh, <laughs> I guess the last thought for, you know, for the central Christian community, since it's also my community, it, it, you know, a, a, a practical and a spiritual point. The practical point is let's remember that we're not a church uh, and we're not going to agree even on some really core important things about what it means to live out uh, as a Christian. And, and, and we, we join and submit to the authority of churches uh, for the purpose of being part of a church community. And Central is different. It's a different kind of institution. It has a different purpose and a different role. And let's focus on what that, the unifying nature of that role of this place. And then the spiritual point, I mean, I was struck at when, when Cholia mentioned 1 Corinthians 13, it closes with love, love believes all things, bears all things, and endures all things. Mm. And, uh, you know, sometimes relationships and community are hard. And sometimes uh, we can aim for lofty ideas of really feeling uh, tight-knit and in solidarity and sometimes 
we're just called to endurance. And I, I hope that we can, at, at, at a minimum, seek to endure with one another in love. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's good. Um, you know, I don't really have anything. I was just really encouraged. And so I've, I want you to be encouraged, your, your community to be encouraged that in engaging in this conversation at all and really thinking about these things. I know um, John had mentioned that we, you all need to be, make sure to be um, evaluating yourselves. And I think you will because you're having this conversation. And so, and then the last thing I thought was, that our hope won't put us to shame. So this is not for naught. So this, God is going to um, do really good things. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. So I believe that for um, this community that we're talking to, but for the the church at large. So I, I do believe that. I have a great hope that, um, well, because of the gospel and because we know the end of the story. Yeah, amen, amen, thank you. Well, I appreciate you both being with us this evening. Um, I know that you both have families and it means so much to, um, for you guys to, to share your time with the parents in our school community, with the teachers, with the staff members. It means the world. Um, Trillia, we so appreciate you being part of us tonight. Um, thank you. And John, it's been really fantastic to learn more about you and the work that God has called you to do. Um, to those of you who came, um, I know that events like tonight, they leave us craving more after it's like, Oh, we just, we just started and we just, um, we're just striking the tip of the iceberg. Um, but we will be emailing our audience with information on how you can order, um, the books by, um, John and by Trillia, this uncommon ground. Um, I really really recommend it. Um, This was one of the books that I read this summer and then reached out to John and said, how do we bring this um, to our school community? And as I mentioned before, um, God's very good idea Um, for those of you with children in elementary school. The illustrations are absolutely beautiful. They're whimsical. Um, They are they're lovely, um, but it, it is all about the story, um, God's great story. And, and it ends with, with Christ rescuing. And that's a message that not only our kids need to hear, but the moms um, and the dads in our community, we all need to hear this too. Um, but we will be sending links so that you guys can order those, as well as the other works by um, Trillia and John. I want to close tonight by reading Isaiah 43:19, our school verse for the 2020-21 school year. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do not perceive it. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. As a community, um, as individuals of Central Christian School, let's stay open to what God is doing and let's stay open to what he's calling us to this season. Thank you so much for joining us and good night to you all.